everyone. Welcome to our latest episode. I am Vivian, one of the co-hosts of the Pulse podcast. Our purpose is to capture the pulse of healthcare innovation, spanning leaders across the healthcare ecosystem. Today, we're super excited to have Julie Yu, general partner, and Jason Horowitz as our guest today. investments in healthcare technology with a focus on companies that are modernizing how we access, pay for, and experience the healthcare system. Julie serves on the board of Riven Health, Alpha Health, and Patient Pay. Prior to joining Andreessen Horowitz, Julie was co-founder and chief product officer of Kyris, a health tech company focused on patient access. She also worked in executive roles across Generation Health, Gnome, and started a career as an early software engineer at Indica Technologies. We're super excited to hear her journey, and also, if you haven't read it yet, she has recently published a refreshing and timely piece called Healthcare the Great Unlock. We're also excited to share that Andreessen Horowitz recently launched their latest healthcare-focused podcast called Bio Eats the World, all about how bio, shorthand for the powerful intersection of biology, healthcare, and technology, is going to shape our future. Fun fact, when I was learning how to build a podcast, I listened to the Andreessen podcast for inspiration. So definitely recommend you check it out and subscribe for future releases. Without further ado, welcome, Julie. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks so much, Vivian, for having me. Awesome. Super excited to dive into all our questions. We have a lot to cover today. A fun question we'd like to kick off is, what did you want to be when you were growing up? Definitely not a VC. <laughs> um, never had crossed my mind as a, as a young person, but uh, my parents were both um, PhDs in technical areas. And so my father was in physics and material science. My mom was in linguistics. So I tended to gravitate towards sort of problem solving and building things and actually wanted to be an engineer uh, when I grew up. I, I had a, a stint uh, wanting to be a doctor, uh, like many other Asian children, I'm sure, but um, ended up doing computer science. Wow, that's amazing. I'm curious, you know, you've had a super impressive career starting as an entrepreneur, successfully scaling Kairos from zero to over 225,000 providers, probably much higher now based on the current numbers. Can you tell us about your journey all the way from starting as an early engineer to now becoming an investor at Andreessen Horowitz? Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, definitely started out um, as, you know, many computer science majors do as, as a software engineer out of college at Indeca, um, always gravitated towards startups. So had joined Indeca when it was, I think, less than 25 people and um, had an awesome time there uh, first couple of years as um, just writing code. And, and doing that aspect of things. And then ultimately uh, discovered that I really liked being customer facing. So ended up playing a couple of additional roles at Indeca um, on the customer facing side, uh, both in terms of um, professional services and implementation management, as well as as a sales engineer. And that was actually my first foray into healthcare. So Indeca was actually known for its technology applications in the e-commerce space. So we had worked with a number of the innovative retail companies um, back in the early days of e-commerce to power their online storefronts. But um, the business started to grow and, and we started to explore additional verticals and healthcare was one of them. And so I had the fortune of being part of the uh, the SWAT team that was sort of exploring healthcare um, at that company and uh, really just got exposed to like how immature the healthcare space was at that time. This was like the early 2000s, way before, you know, any of the kind of regulatory drivers that um, has resulted in the, in the current digital transformation that we're seeing in the space. But, you know, just got fascinated by how much opportunity there was to kind of apply the same types of technology that Indeca was using to transform other industries um, and apply that to healthcare. So actually ended up making a career change into healthcare at that point by way of grad school. I, I really had no uh, sort of domain expertise or network in, in the healthcare space. So felt that kind of spending three years in grad school to sort of build that muscle would be a good use of time, ended up being um, a fabulous use of time in many ways. 
And that was the way by which I, I kind of um, started to focus on this space. Worked at a couple of, of startups in, in the healthcare domain uh, prior to, to, to founding Kairos, um, the last of which was actually where I met my co-founder. Oh, wow. um, and he and I worked together there for a couple of years, uh, sold that company to CVS, and then um, said, hey, that was fun. Let's do it again. And uh, started Kairos in 2010. Awesome. What was the company before Kairos that you sold to CVS? Uh, it's a company called Generation Health, and uh, it was it was fascinating, especially in, in context of what's happening now in the market. There, it was a what we call the GBM, a genetic benefit management company. So, in the same way that PBMs had sort of played the intermediary role for the pharmaceutical industry, um, helped to you know build formularies, rationalize price, and sort of bring supply and demand together, uh, we at Generation Health were seeking to do the same for molecular diagnostics and the genetic testing industry, um, given that that was a burgeoning area of the market, you know, thousands of labs all producing the same test, but with highly variant pricing and payers, you know, struggling to understand how to cover those tests and under what circumstances reimbursement made sense versus not. So we were basically the benefit management platform that brought together those two sides of the market. Awesome. And did you meet him in business school while you were in business school? Like, what was the story there? Actually, yeah, funny story. It's funny you mentioned that. Um, he was uh, a student at HBS when I was a student at Sloan. He was the student in one of the classes that I was TAing, which actually happened to be a healthcare IT class. It was the only one of, of its sort at the time um, across the entire sort of Harvard and MIT system. And he was uh, auditing the course. He was like completely quiet the entire semester. And um, ended up uh, graduating and, and becoming a VC actually. And then I uh, ended up teeing that same class again the next year. And um, I, there was, I, I cleared the mailing list, added all the new students. There happened to be one student that I accidentally left on the mailing list and it happened to be Graham Gardner. Wow. When I sent out the mailing list, he happened to respond um, being the nice person that he is and said, hey, I'm no longer there, but would love to catch up at some point. It turned out that he was investing in a company that ended up being Generation Health, which was also um, ex exactly in line with the graduate work that I had done um, in, in the genetic testing space. And so we totally hit it off and ended up um, you know, having that ride there for a couple of years. He actually both invested and then joined the company as a chief medical officer. Wow. And so he and I worked together in that company in an operating capacity um, and then ended up co-founding Kairos together after that. Wow, that's so serendipitous. <laughs> <laughs> Very much so. You need to take all the calls that people ask you for. <laughs> exactly. Um, I'm, I'm curious, in terms of Kairos, like you've spent a lot of time, uh, you know, working there, scaling it. What was that journey like from, you know, beginning it was very uh, probably focused on product market fit. And then, you know, later on it was more, I saw one of your interviews, was, it was more about making decisions on what not to build versus what to build. I'm curious how you summarize that many years of, but love to hear your thoughts there. <laughs> I was going to say that could be a whole other podcast, but I would say the themes I took away from that journey were, um, first and foremost, we were early. We were early to a very emerging market, which, you know, at the time it was called healthcare IT and just the name itself sort of indicates how legacy it was and how we were um, truly like one of the pioneers sort of building what, what ultimately became the digital health and health tech market. And so, you know, I, I certainly took away from that experience what it's like to be early to an emerging market and have to essentially category create um, as, as in addition to, you know, building your core business. Um, so that's certainly one of them, you know, you already alluded to this, but, you know, another big sort of theme of, of the journey was 
traversing the very long, hard, you know, tumultuous, deep climb to product market fit in enterprise healthcare. And, you know, this is certainly an industry where it's never, it's just never simple. You have, you know, multiple stakeholders, you've got, you know, regulated components of, of the market. You have, you know, it's a, it's a high stakes business, obviously, in terms of, you know, deploying software into the hands of people who are treating patients and, you know, just really having to have a high bar for that. So, you know, that was, I, I think, another huge theme of, of my journey there. And then I, you know, I, I also, I think, took away from that the importance of um, being strategic about fundraising. And, um, you know, this uh, certainly is something that I now have the benefit of, of both sides of, of the table of perspective. But, you know, having the right investors, um, having the right, uh, raising the right amount of, of, of capital to, to fund the, the plan, having the right mindset about valuation, you know, at a time when, again, the market is being built sort of as you go. Was, was another big takeaway. But, you know, net net, I mean, there was there was so much that was so super hard about that journey, but, and we definitely should have died multiple times just by by virtue of the laws of physics. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm just in awe in retrospect as to how much resilience and sort of stubborn grit my, my co-founder and I had to sort of see it through. And um, I'm super proud even having stepped down, you know, the company is still going now and my co-founder is still running it. You know, just super proud of the yeah, mark that it made on the industry. super impressive what you guys have built and really, I'm curious to hear the specific transition point to investing. So what was the decision? What inspired you sort of to go into investing and what inspired you? Yeah. So to as I mentioned earlier, never intended to be a venture capitalist. It wasn't necessarily a path that I was pursuing, but um, I did end up stepping down from Kairos after an eight and a half year ride at the end of 2018. And my original plan was actually to, first of all, take six months off, which I've literally never done in my life. Actually was not successful doing that even when I stepped down from Kairos. So technically I've never done that, but um, that was the original plan. And then I was going to move out West. I had been based in Boston and New York um, sort of my entire career and uh, always had wanted to come out West and I wanted to start another company. So that was kind of the original plan. And uh, one of the partners here was someone that I'd known from my past life who sort of caught wind of the fact that I was, I was uh, transitioning out here and said, hey, you know, why don't you come check out A16Z? And at the time, I honestly said like, oh, I didn't realize that A16Z invested in healthcare because I genuinely had not considered, I'd never had, you know, pitched to, to A16Z. I'd sort of focused on, uh, we, we were very deliberate about um, raising from sort of pure play healthcare investors, you know, folks who we thought would understand and have the patience to sort of see through the time horizons that we were dealing with and, you know, understand the domain. But, you know, when I, um, when I came to learn about not just, you know, the platform that we have here, which I had obviously read about and heard about and was, um, was certainly impressed by, but, you know, the specific motion that, that the firm had started to build around healthcare specifically, uh, I got pretty, um, pretty interested in, in kind of the value proposition. I think it's a, a pretty unique value proposition for founders. And, you know, the sort of tagline that I always share is that, you know, now that I know it so well, had I had access to a platform like this when I was building Kairos, I, I literally think I would have saved years of my life um, just because of the, you know, unfair competitive advantage that, that we ordain on, on our portfolio companies. So that ultimately, you know, long story short, ended up convincing me to, um, you know, sort of take the leap to the other side and uh, have never looked back since. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, and I guess like talking about how, what services 
A16 provides for its founders. I'd love to hear what are the things that you discovered along the way, having been a founder and also- Yeah, so as far as the ACC, the um, kind of philosophy, and this was, you know, Mark and Ben's vision when they first founded the firm now 10 years ago, was we want to be investing in uh, first-time technical founders for the most part and as the long-run CEOs of their companies because, you know, the firm was founded at a time when it was natural to sort of replace founders and, you know, bring in kind of professional management, so to speak, after a few years in. But this was really about betting on on the founders as, as the long-run leaders of their of their companies and you know but oftentimes these founders never had business experience or experience building companies or teams and so we had to build a muscle that enabled those founders to not only learn those skills but actually get access to the types of network and expertise that would otherwise take them years to build on their own or maybe even decades to build on their own from day one such that they would have that unfair advantage that I mentioned so that's really what Mark and Ben have um, done exceptionally um, across the firm from the beginning and was also a motion that we started as a firm about five years ago specifically in the healthcare domain so we now have an, an entire operating platform it's actually we have I think over 200 employees of which at least 125 of those people are entirely dedicated to the platform and to supporting our portfolio portfolio companies, of which over 30 are um, dedicated to our healthcare portfolio. And so it's everything from, you know, people practices and, you know, technical talent and executive talent and market development. So, you know, how do we give you access to the decision makers in the provider, the payer, the employer, the government markets? Um, and, uh, and marketing, mm -hmm. how do we ensure that these, again, these first time founders understand how to position them, their company for success in the long run. So it's all sorts of just expertise and access to networks that are specific to the domain of the companies that we invest in that really makes it unique and special. And, and just the scale that we do it at, I think is also very unique. Right. I think in healthcare, you worked in healthcare enterprise, a lot of it depends on your first pilot working with a health system or working with a payer or which go to market strategy we can choose. So it's really helpful to have those connections and have those operators on your team. Exactly. And that's the other thing I would say, I would say is everyone here is an ex-operator or founder. So you know, just the mindset that we bring, we're all, we all have a bias towards building and, and doing and, and action. And um, I think that goes a long way in terms of the resonance with our founders who, again, having been one, I understand the difference that the partners that Andreessen bring to the boardroom is mm -hmm. entirely different than what I experienced with my, my investors who were primarily you know, financial investors for their entire careers. And so that's another dimension to, um, you know, I think the, the unique strengths that we bring to the table. Right, that makes a lot of sense. Cool. I wanted to talk about your awesome piece that you released on The Great Unlock. Um, you talk about a once in a century mass acceleration of opportunities for company creation in healthcare and really motivating people to build. I really love how you frame the macro tailwinds of creating this impetus. I wonder if we can talk through each of them at a high level. I know there's a lot of information to unpack there, but I'd love to talk about maybe like the high level trends that you see there. Yeah, I mean, thank you for reading the piece. I think the, the main theme there was that as we look at what's happening in healthcare, it's not necessarily that anything has fundamentally changed. It's more that, you know, things that we thought would play out sometime in the next, let's call it 10 years, are all, all of a sudden being massively accelerated and happening in two or three. And so, you know, some of the, the specific tailwinds that we talked about were, you know, whether it's unbundling of the hospital and this notion that, you know, you no longer have to go to these monolithic acute care facilities to get your care services. Um, they are being made available to us in far more modular ways, whether it's the move to value-based care, um, you know, the recontouring of provider networks and kind of the redefinition of what it means to engage with physicians, um, you know, beyond kind of local markets. 
And then even like infrastructure layer things like interoperability and automation and, and what that means as far as um, just reducing the cost of, of care delivery. So all of those trends, again, were things that we had been talking about a year ago, but had had a certain, you know, sort of expectation for a pretty lengthy, you know, uh, journey for those things to play out. But um, we're seeing, you know, sort of occur, you know, nearly, it seems nearly overnight in some cases. So that, that was a big kind of overarching theme. I think the other, the reason that, that we're seeing that acceleration is this fundamental dislocation that happens to be happening on both the supply side of the market and the demand side of the market at the same time. And on the supply side, we're seeing providers just really have to like redefine, you know, their, their services mix. And, you know, just as uh, in, in other services industries, like restaurants, we're seeing them kind of shrink their menus down and, and streamline their operations and their supply chain. Same thing is happening in healthcare where large hospitals are really having to double down on their core services, which then leaves many of, of what they might consider their ancillary services up for grabs, which, you know, creates a tremendous amount of opportunity for upstarts to come in and, and actually grab that mindshare from consumers and referring providers for that matter. And then on the demand side of, of the equation, obviously we as consumers are, it's, it's almost like a, just a economic trauma is, is certainly one, one big part of it where with math, mass unemployment, um, if you're a company, you're obviously grappling with, you know, sort of cost containment in light of what's happening in the financial markets. Consumers are no longer able to actually literally mobilize and go to their doctors. The, the entirety of the healthcare system, in my uh, eyes, was optimized around the patient going to the doctor versus the other way around. And so you have this, again, um, kind of mismatch of, of motion uh, in this day and age. And, you know, another thing that I think is now you're starting to see this play out is that, you know, consumers are all of a sudden willing to displace their provider relationships, you know, long-standing provi provider relationships in the name of convenience and affordability. You know, if, if, they're, if you're a legacy provider who you've been working with for 10 years isn't able to service you virtually, then you're going to be willing. And if you have an actual need, a healthcare need, you're going to be very willing to, to sever that relationship and, and go elsewhere and, and kind of vote with your feet. And same goes for a referring relationship. Providers cannot connect and communicate with their peers when doing referrals and sort of relying on them for care coordination then again, you're going to see all of these relationships be upturned. So those are some of the fundamental um, tectonic shifts that, that we sort of predicted and, and we're seeing play out, I think, in the last couple of months. Yeah, I have, I guess, two questions. More on the supply side is like, there's a debate between what parts of the health system should be pulled to a national level and what others should be more regional and more local. I'm curious, what is your perspective on that? Because we see a lot of telehealth solutions crossing state borders now, whereas other things that improve access to care, we're seeing more like CVSs providing health. Yeah, I mean, I think you could ultimately describe it as kind of a barbell effect where the, and the sort of the x-axis being acuity level. So you tend to see high adoption of national scale virtual care models in the lower acuity space where you have urgent care, even, you know, sort of basic forms of primary care. That's really where you've seen a lot of motion around uh, this notion of tapping into national networks of, of physicians specifically. And then the other version of this, which we also had seen before, but again, I think it's being accelerated, is the notion of like a centers of excellence strategy where you have a handful of high-end facilities that perform, you know, one or two procedures really, really exceptionally well and cost-effectively. And, you know, we had seen mm -hmm. the advent of employers, for instance, being willing to send their employees to the Cleveland Clinic or to the Mayo to get uh, those procedures because it was ultimately more cost-effective to send them there than it was to necessarily go to a local provider who might not have had that much expertise or experience in that particular procedure. So I think on the two ends right. of the spectrum, kind of the super low acuity stuff and more transactional kind of 
motion. And then on the other end, the super high-end procedures that are more kind of high stakes, but um, are you mm -hmm. know more likely to be sort of clustered in terms of specialty across the country. And then sort mm -hmm. of the in-between is really, I think things like chronic disease management, where there is a need for a longitudinal relationship with between that patient and provider. Um, I think that's where you're starting to see maybe the second wave of, of motion occur. And what's interesting there is that it's not, I think like the, the, the fundamental definition of what is a provider has changed in that, in that domain, where maybe it used to be the fact that it was a physician, an MD, who was the quarterback of, of that type of relationship. But now you're seeing models where it's a coach or a nurse or even a PA who might be playing that more sort of, you know, continuous um, relationship role with the patient. So, you know, my sense is that you'll see things fragment out that way where two ends of the spectrum, you might have these highly specialized, you know, kind of virtual programs that are more transactional in nature. And then in the middle ground, um, you would have non-physicians playing more of that longitudinal role. Mm -hmm. I do see a lot of founders saying, okay, physicians are really expensive. Their time is really valuable. Let's move this interaction to health coaches. I'm wondering, like, do you think it works across all verticals? Yeah, yeah, no, I, um, it's a great question. I mean, I think ultimately it's really, I think it's about two things and certainly, you know, from, from the VC lens, it's, it's about what segments or what verticals of the market do you believe you can generate venture returns? And it only really works in areas where the economics make sense, basically, to, to oversimplify it. So, you know, it's generally areas where there is already, you know, some kind of adoption of ideally capitated or value-based payments, you know, have, have already been adopted. There's enough critical mass of, I would say long-term patients where you can build like a really durable, scalable, high growth and, and repeatable business motion around that patient population. And so it's not necessarily the case that you, for let's say a given condition where the annual journey of a patient maybe is only one or two encounters and it's not really um, something that requires that, that continuous you know, care motion versus something where there is a need to, whether it's, you know, medication manage or engage patients and proactively, you know, risk stratify to know, uh, you know, when to reach out, things of that sort. So I think that's, you know, kind of generally where we've seen the split is, is condition areas where, where that sort of characteristic set is, is exhibited and where the economics and the financial models, you know, sort of support the ability to grow these, these types of businesses. Makes sense. And then also going back to uh, the industry dislocation aspect, on the demand side, we see a lot of people not having insurance coverage anymore or uh, going through economic hardship. I'm wondering, what is your perspective on like, what's a good solution for this? Is it something that's like more transparent in costs? Is it more insurance coverage for those types of populations? How do you solve this problem? Yeah, I mean, it's that's the multi-billion dollar question. Um, I wish I had a simple answer to it. But I think, you know, again, parsing it down, there's multiple segments for which you can answer this question. One is you have your the unfortunate mass unemployment. So folks who are now no longer covered by their employers and sort of just left to their own devices to figure out, do I enroll for Medicaid? Do I go buy um, something off the exchange, an ACA plan off the exchange? Or do I just you know remain uninsured and, and sort of take my risk? I think you're starting to see the emergence of more low cost direct to consumer options for very basic coverage. And even in some, in some cases, uh, the notion of sort of atomic coverage or ad hoc coverage for specific conditions or specific types of, of coverage. And so I think you'll see the emergence of just more options for consumers who are not under employer-sponsored plans. And then similarly, in the employer-sponsored world, you know, you are starting to see modularization of kind of what historically have been very monolithic health plan products. 
And, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of that has indexed on certainly, you know, price transparency, but the deductible dynamic has just gotten to a breaking point where it's unsustainable to continue to push costs to the consumer. And I think you're starting to see a, a reversion back in the other direction to say, okay, let's create, you know, zero deductible plans that are indexed on primary care and offer uh, heavy, you know, primary care uh, quarterbacking with narrow networks and kind of high performing networks such that you can just better control kind of the downstream, you know, sort of cost equation for those consumers who are engaging. And so um, we are starting to see, I would say like the reemergence, this is another area where you, you had seen these kinds of plans, you know, kind of early days in the last several years, but because now these employers are facing such financial crisis, there's just a heightened urgency and kind of burning platform aspect to just needing to rethink and reevaluate those kinds of options versus the traditional, again, monolithic health plan products that they've gotten through the carriers. Yeah, I think it's super exciting that there's more emphasis on helping this population. And, and even though there's unfortunate economic uh, macro trend, uh, I think it's really good for healthcare innovation. In terms of the second aspect of, and we probably can't talk through most of the tailwinds, the rewiring the value chain, I'm curious, I see a lot of verticalization of, you talk about verticalization of full stack healthcare services, we see a lot of it in diabetes, cardiac care, women's health. Is there more room for innovation in other verticals where you see there's like a white space or I'm curious, like, are there areas where there is opportunity for new startups or new ideas? Yeah, I mean, I think there's always, I think, you know, further segmentation, I would say, is what drives the, you know, kind of emerging opportunities for additional innovation. So I think many of the initial digital health companies that you just described that have gotten to scale have started in the employer channel where it makes sense because of the just risk alignment and incentive alignment with self-insured employers and, you know, them taking risk. Those populations tend to be of, you know, specific demographics, you know, certainly, uh, you know, wh whether it be by age, whether it be by even just level of kind of baseline health. And I think you will see is um, the expansion of those types of care models into, you know, other populations, whether it be senior populations through, you know, Medicare and Medicare Advantage type channels, whether it be even Medicaid as, as well, where there's, um, you know, I think even more appetite perhaps in other areas for value-based approaches to reimbursement. And then, you know, we're actually starting to see a ton of emerging startups focusing on pediatrics, which has been, I would say, an underserved uh, segment as far as, you know, sort of innovation and care models as well. So I think kind of demographic-wise, um, the segmentation is, is one direction that it's taking. I would say there's also opportunity by market channel. So again, if, if employer was kind of the tip of the spear for much of what's, what's happening here, in many ways, the employer channel, I, I kind of view it as like the beacon for what health plans have failed to deliver to their customers in a meaningful way. And therefore the employer sort of, you know, going to the market and saying, um, how do we direct contract with innovative players who are gonna give us a better solution? And so I think health plans are coming around to now saying, how can we actually carve in those types of benefits to make sure that our value proposition remains um, you know, viable. And so I think that the payer channel is emerging and you're seeing that already with the likes of like Teladoc and Livongo, you know, sort of pursuing those channels as well. And I think the ultimate holy grail is that you get this wired into the actual traditional provider rails, which, you know, tends to be the hardest, you know, go to market, obviously, for, for many reasons. But again, you are starting to see some startups actually start by saying, you know what, we're going to sell this to the provider and we're going to enable the, the providers to deliver better care and actually themselves take risk so that they can get paid and, and get, get credit for these more innovative care models themselves versus mm -hmm. relying on the payer channel. Right. That's really interesting. Um, definitely see a lot of success in employer channel. And it's usually the one that seems to be the most competitive, but also the fastest. And then providers taking 
months to to onboard them. So I definitely would like to see that shift happen. And it's good that you're seeing that on your side. Maybe we can talk through the trend in aging in place. Um, we see a lot of uh, elder care sort of being shifted to being at home with a lot of monitoring because of COVID-19 and also the future of digital healthcare. What are the types of new technologies or new uh, innovations that you see there? Yeah, it's interesting. I think there's there's probably two main ways by which you could view the investment thesis for, for this concept of aging in place. One is, you know, the in place could refer to either physical location. So, you know, allowing the, the aging um, population to stay in their homes, you know, sort of using technology, whether it's virtual, uh, you know, care, whether it's even like telepresence or virtual reality and re remote monitoring technologies to engage them um, in their sort of native environment, so to speak, and have them and bring the world to them, let's call it, you know, to um, en enable them to remain sort of mentally happy and, and, uh, and safe. Um, that's one way to look at it. And that's what you were just describing is, you know, the whole slew of both technologies, as well as I think business model innovations and, and reimbursement uh, tailwinds that are driving, you know, certainly more to the home being a primary site of care. Um, I think the other way to look at it, too, is also the in place could refer to your quality of life. And there are also companies who are saying, how can we extend the quality of life for longer such that you can actually traverse the world as if you're young until the day you die? And, uh, you know, a lot of people sort of refer to that as squaring the curve. So instead of, you know, sort mm -hmm. of slowly degrading um, quality of life over some period of time, how do you just remain, you know, sort of uh, consistent and then, you know, all of a sudden die, so to speak, um, in a way yeah. that is, is less, you know, just again, traumatic. So, you know, we, we look at it from both lens, lenses here at our firm because we also invest in, you know, computational medicine and, and biotech uh, type um, innovations. Um, there are companies who are exploiting, you know, the pathways for aging related diseases and saying, how can we just treat patients so, so that they stay healthier for longer, um, in addition to investing in health tech companies that are facilitating that sort of um, the, the, the physical version of, of aging in place. Cool. So I'd like to transition to board member 101 and, and talking about your portfolio companies. Can you talk about how you work as a board advisor and how you invest time in working portfolio companies? Yeah, I mean, this is one of my favorite parts of the job is getting to um, work with my portfolio companies um, in both, you know, whether it's a board capacity, so we have board seats for some and just observer seats for others. But I would say the motion, is, you know, tends to be relatively similar just in terms of, you know, kind of the day to day. Um, and this is where I'll you know, sort of refer to what I mentioned earlier, you know, because all of the partners here at our firm you know, have been founders, have been ex-operators, and, you know, sort of have been in the shoes of, of the folks that we work with. You know, I think we tend to take a more operationally indexed view on uh, how to support our founders. Um, and so, again, it's everything from, you know, how do I think about building my teams to, um, you know, how do I, what, how do I sort of come up with a framework for making the right decisions about product prioritization? Uh, and then, you know, even tactical things like what, what is the best way to message something to, you know, persona A versus persona B? We, we spend a lot of time sort of, you know, on the ground, especially in the earlier stages. We do a lot of seed, seed investing where, you know, companies are sort of building from the ground up and um, we'll get we'll get pretty deeply involved um, in, in those types of, of operational decision making. 
um, you know, I would say the the sort of the narrative way that I would describe how I think about it is, you know, I distinctly remember coming out of my board meetings and, you know, being extremely energized by a broad sweeping discussion that we had about the strategic direction of the company, you know, what are the opportunities in the next three to five years that we should be, you know, indexing on and, you know, how to make sure that we're sort of strategically setting ourselves up for success to be able to capture that value associated with those long, long-term um, opportunity sets, but then, you know, sort of walking out of the board meeting and immediately turning to my co-founder and being like, okay, what about that thing that's going to kill us next week? Like, how do we solve that? And, you know, that, that sort of, that delta uh, in terms of kind of the strata at which the conversations occur at the board level, I think, you know, sometimes it's very appropriate to leave it at that level in the board meeting, but, you know, I also seek to be kind of the sounding board and, and the go-to, um, you know, advisor for, for those kind of ground level discussions as well. And so um, that's a, a bit of, you know, kind of the philosophy that I and, and others here at the firm take uh, in terms of how we approach supporting our founders. Awesome. Yeah, it must be super helpful to have someone like you who, you know, founded Kairos and have so much healthcare experience to, to help these founders from the ground up. So in terms of uh, diving back into investing and picking these portfolio companies, what's one specific area you focus on when looking at new investments? That's maybe a little bit different from how, you know, maybe other investors look at companies. Yeah, I mean, one is that there's definitely, you know, I wish there was just one thing that we could say we focused on um, uniquely. And, you know, as, as people in this space know, there's, there's never, you know, just one reason why you get conviction on making an investment. Um, and, and that's what I think makes it fun is, is the ability to, you know, really have a fairly nuanced um, approach to evaluating any, any company or investment opportunities. So, I mean, the things that I certainly index on are, um, you know, scale of vision, right? So because the service area of healthcare is so massive, um, you sort of inherently have to have a, a massive vision from day one um, about how you're going to, you know, what, what, what portion of that space are you going to attack and, and what's your thesis for how you're going to attack it. So, um, you know, I think it's not uh, in the best interest of founders to have, you know, two um, pragmatic, let's call it, of a, of a vision, you know, at the beginning, because you just need to take, you know, pretty, pretty big strides to kind of get out there and, and get the scale that you need. Um, I also think about market tailwinds. So, you know, everything that we just discussed about, you know, the writing and, and just how we view the macro trends is very important in terms of really the timing question of like, is this every, as Mark Andreessen likes to say, every idea, there, there's no bad ideas. It's all about the, the timing of, of when the idea matters. Uh, and so we, we take that into account pretty deeply here. Um, I would say one thing that's probably a bit unique about us is that, you know, we do care about, we call these um, sort of hybrid founders. So, even though we obviously value domain expertise in healthcare. So if it's, you know, let's say a physician founder or, you know, someone who's worked at a large payer or provider or in the healthcare services space their entire career, um, we do also index heavily on, is there tech first DNA in the business such that, you know, when push comes to shove, this company is going to use technology as the means to achieve, you know, 10x scale and economics and, you know, growth opportunity vis-a-vis -vis its non-tech-enabled peers in the market. Um, and so that's, you know, definitely something that we look very heavily at, especially in the earlier stages if we're making, you know, again, seed stage investments is really that, that hybrid DNA in the team. Mm -hmm. When you talk about technology-enabled, what's a specific example of what would be technology-enabled versus what's sort of like a, not really, it says it's technology, but it actually isn't? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's a hard, really hard distinction because I think any company, especially in this day and age, can argue that they are a technology company in some way, shape or form because technology is, you know, the means by which um, every company has to operate to some degree on the infrastructure level. Um, you know, I would say um, a couple of things. So one is, you know, to what degree is 
there are there things there are there components of the operating model that are only done through technology versus through humans. So you know I think um, a lot of times a lot of the non-clinical aspects of a business are the things that get automated first. So you know for instance we're investors in a, a revenue cycle automation company where you know we're literally taking the rote tasks that humans like no human should be subject to doing you know manually um, but certainly do in droves in the, in the current traditional industry and you use AI and ML to automate those components not only to replicate what the humans can do but actually find the more intelligent ways to do those and they actually like the AI actually can come up with uh, unintuitive paths that no human would have come up with but actually end up getting the job done better and more efficiently so we, we certainly look for that um, and then I think um, the other aspect is are you introducing a new primary user of technology that you know more traditional models haven't, and so the, the most e like the easiest example of this for me is that it, typically traditional providers are they do they actually don't consider patients a primary end user of their technologies, right? Most of the technologies that again traditional health systems and hospitals have used are very you know either provider or administrator centric, and you know the patient portal is sort of an afterthought that's kind of tacked on, and um, you know tools are sort of you know bolted on on top of that. Whereas I think some of the more kind of the virtual native um, you know tech enabled services companies that we see today actually treat the the patient as a primary end user from day one of their technology. Awesome, yeah. Um, that's super helpful to have a distinction. I think sometimes it's like, okay, like just because you automated one aspect, does that make a technology company? Yeah. So I'd love to hear if there's like a sweet spot for where you, where Andreessen Horowitz makes investments, especially maybe differentiating the digital health versus the bio side, if you can speak to that. Is there a point where the startup's too early um, or is there a point where the startup's too late? Yeah. For you to invest. Yeah, no, it's a great question. And it's um, it's a highly evolving, you know, sort of set of definitions these days, obviously, in terms of what's a seed investment versus not. But we are, you know, an early stage investor in the sense that we um, will invest, will be first institutional capital into to some companies and then invest, you know, upwards to kind of the Series B and Series C stage um, as well. Um, what's also unique about our firm is that we also have a growth fund, and so we are we are able to follow on uh, both follow on as well as make net new investments in growth stage companies and really see them through to sort of you know the liquidity event at the end, and um, so we we partner very closely with our growth team in that regard. But on the mm -hmm. you know in terms of how we think about our sweet spot, I would say you know Series A's have always been kind of our main wheelhouse. Um, the instances in which we will do seed investing, it tends to be, you know, areas where we have high conviction, sort of we have a prepared mind, we've, you know, done our sort of market work and are, you know, convinced and have, you know, just again, um, compelling reasons to believe that this is a space where we should be investing. And, um, you know, a, a lot of it at that point obviously boils down to the founder. Um, I was actually looking at our, our portfolio. I think the majority of seed investments that we've made are founders with whom we had some kind of longstanding relationship with such that you know we just there were certain aspects of the investment that were de-risked because of that insight and um right. and then obviously those founders bringing to the table their own you know earned secrets or um having gone through the idea maze as we like to say uh in that particular mm -hmm. domain to the point that we think they have some unique edge on how they would go after that market opportunity right makes a lot of sense so i'd love to wrap up with some last words of wisdom from you and extract as much wisdom from you as possible for someone who also attend business school and we are a business school digital health podcast, do you have any advice for those looking for entrepreneurial roles, whether it's founding a company or working and in investing in early stage healthcare technology? Um, 
love to hear about that. Yeah, um, I mean, I, this is sort of uh, going back to the way that I used my time in grad school. I think it is the time to, you know, get the experiences that you think will help differentiate you going into your, your jobs post-grad school. So, um, and I think it's very different in that regard from undergrad, where I think for undergrad students, I would encourage people to like take the hardest classes that they can or, you know, take the classes from the best professors, et cetera. I think in business school, it's much more about the sort of the practical um, use of that time, you know, building the networks and really cutting your teeth on something that you think will give you leverage into the career path that you want to pursue afterwards. So, you know, very practically speaking, like I personally actually worked for a number of startups part time while I was in grad school. And it's, you know, you have, I, I think grad school is like that, you have the, the benefit of um, being able to do short, sort of short bursts of work um, for a pretty dedicated period of time, but then not having to necessarily commit long term. So it creates this um, sort of unique dynamic where you can really experiment and figure out like, do I, like in my case, it was, um, is product management, you know, the thing I want to do for the rest of my life. And so I actually did a, a couple of product management roles while I was in grad school, just to sort of, you know, figure out whether that mm -hmm. was going to be a good fit for me. Um, and then similarly, again, because I was making a career change by way of grad school into a different industry, um, there is no, like, you know, there's no dumb question. There's no, um, you know, type of sort of cold outreach that you shouldn't do. And I mean, cold outreach is especially at a place like Wharton should be something that is few and far between just because mm -hmm. the networks are so robust. But I think uh, leveraging that, you know, your position as a grad student, no one, people tend to not say no when grad students reach out for informational conversations, mm -hmm. um, et cetera. And I'll, I'll say personally, just because I get outreached a, a ton from MBAs who are looking to either break into venture or get into entrepreneurship, um, you know, it come with content, right? Like hook me somehow and, you know, demonstrate to me that you've either read my work or, you know, maybe learned something about the previous companies that I was involved in, or in this case, in, you know, my current role, uh, something about the companies I've invested in and, you know, show me a point of view that maybe I don't have um, so that, you know, I, right. I know that you have something kind of valuable to offer. Awesome. Cool. All right. Everyone, make sure you come with something important. <laughs> um, great. So thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us on the Pulse podcast. We're really excited to share your inspiring story and helpful advice to the world. So really appreciate your time. Thanks so much, Vivian.